Hey there, welcome to the Creative Metaverse Podcast. My name is Ryan Kingsline, and I'm the founder of Vertex School, where we train creatives for the career of their lives. In this podcast, we interview amazing artists and creatives working in film, games, and building the metaverse right now. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. All right. Uh, well, again, man, thank you so much for uh, for sitting down. It must be a crazy busy time for you. Uh, yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's definitely um, been, um, that's an understatement, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> so um, I was researching you and uh, it's really hard to find stuff. Like, I mean, I imagine you've just been busy building, but I didn't see a ton online or anything. Yeah, for better or worse, we, we've kept a pretty low profile. Uh, I mean, we've had some press like a, a few years ago, we did some stuff with Intel and, and managed to get some, uh, you know, we trended a bit with that. And we had a horse that made it to the front page of Reddit a couple of years ago. But I, yeah, I have that other, horse. OK, yeah. But other than those sorts of things, yeah, no, definitely um, low profile. All right. So I am. Um... Uh, I'm just amazed at like what you guys are doing. And there's a lot that I really am excited to talk to you uh, about because you kind of have this amazing journey as a creative and entrepreneur and um, sold a company now and you have an Oscar. Like what? That's uh, awesome. Yeah, no, I've been really lucky. I mean, uh, the domain that I focused in, you know, which is, you know, computer graphics and characters specifically, when I got started mm -hmm. in it, it was a really small industry. So I think worldwide, there probably would have been, you know, 3000 people or something like that doing it at the point in time when I started. So I sort of rose uh, like a road that bubble of expansion as uh, the interest in that area started to grow. So like now there's, I, I don't know how many creatives are out there right now working in the space of characters and 3D graphics, but yeah, I'm, I imagine it would count in the millions now, but i um, not sure exactly. Yeah. So James, when did you start? Uh, I started professionally in the early nineties, uh, but you know, I was a hobbyist, uh, mm. in, in high school as well. So I was, uh, kind of saved up all my, um, all my weekend, uh, job money to buy a, a Commodore Amiga back in the day. Um, yeah. like this would have been like 86 or so. And then, uh, got introduced to, you know, using, you know, a, a text editor to build early sort of graphic stuff back then, yeah. which was a, a lot of fun. When did you get into Maya? Um, well, I was uh, using Power Animator before Maya, and mm -hmm. then um, uh, we the show I was on at the time, second season, uh, we transitioned over into Maya instead. So we were on uh, Maya, I think, one at that point. We skipped the beta release, but um, we were kind of playing with that at the time. But um, yes, yeah, so that would have been around 98, I guess, 99, 98. 99. Okay. So, so you were actually, like, you were professional. When yeah. uh, Maya yep. came out, I was yep. just like my first uh, jump into it. Um, Maya had just been ported to the PC. So you weren't on those like octanes. Anymore. Okay. Yeah. 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 And no, I was my, in school. Yeah. No, my first um, like professional job uh, doing 3D graphics. Yeah. We were on Silicon graphics machines at the time. So you felt pretty privileged sitting in front of a super expensive computer getting <laughs> to play around. So yeah. And how much power did those have compared to today? Oh, less than my phone by a long shot. Yeah, <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. So why don't um, I um, why don't we talk a little bit about what you do? So you're a, you're a, started as a 
um, as character, and then you went into rigging and then TD work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have kind of a specialized uh, part of this. It's you're not just doing TD, and uh, I'm sure you know, like technical directors. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like that's like saying I breathe air. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I sort of self-identify as a TD still, like yeah, that's sort yeah. of what I've done professionally for most of my life. But uh, when I started, uh, you know, it was all about general skills. So like you'd have to do a bit of coding, a little bit of modeling, some lighting, mm-hmm. you know, texturing. You sort of would try to cover that gamut of stuff. Uh, the one area where I've never really um, excelled at and I've sort of let other people do on my behalf is animating. I'm just not cut out for the actual keyframing part of it. It just uh, doesn't, uh, yeah, it just I'm not good, but um, yeah. fr- from the uh, but everything else in the pipeline, especially if it has a technical bent to it, uh, I you know enjoy it and uh, I've done a lot of that in my career. Um, so my my focus uh, career wise, I've worked at a number of places of number you know different sizes, you know everything from Saturday morning cartoons and commercials to feature animation and visual effects. Uh, kind of spent most of my uh, professional career before Ziva in the land of uh, visual effects. Uh, worked uh, longest period of time at um, Weta, which is Peter Jackson's company in New Zealand, and then. Um, yeah, moved here to Vancouver and then uh, worked at uh, Digital Domain and Method and then started Ziva sort of after that. Um, but yeah, my area of focus has always been characters, but I've um, done everything from lighting characters and rigging characters and writing you know, software to simulate characters and what have you. But that's sort of been a, a passion of mine. Any sculpting? Uh, yeah, I did go to traditional art school uh, before mm-hmm. I got got into the career. So I went to um, didn't finish a degree, but I did um, like kind of a half program at Ontario College of Art and Design before the design was part of their official name. It just used to be Ontario College of Art, and yeah. then did did a uh, partial film thing at Ryerson University as well. Yeah, so you won an Oscar in two thousand thirteen, right? Yeah, so it's a uh, I, I, they um, technically a science and engineering academy mm-hmm. award is uh, yeah. is the Oscar name is uh, limited to the statuette. Uh, in our case, it's a plaque, uh, which um, yeah, they they're they're pretty finicky about that stuff. So they want to yeah. make sure that for, you represent it right. Um, forget them, forget them. Yeah, so that was um, for work that uh, a couple colleagues and I uh, were involved with uh, at yeah. Weta back at the time. So we wrote um, the software that they use at Weta uh, to this day, still actually for um, uh, simulating their characters. Mm-hmm. I think people um, when we talk about rigging and character work, there's a and especially because, you know, I, I work from the student side. So I'm always thinking like, you know, the careers and how I can present this to them. Um, but rigging's one of those and technical director. People are looking at this and it's still kind of a black box. Um, of course, there's rigging and you can take the and intro to rigging class and you can learn how to use Maya, the kinematics, set the bones up, all that stuff. Um, but rigging's a lot more than just that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, can you tell me like a little bit of like, you know, what is involved in rigging and um, and then we'll unpack a little bit more about like the coding side of it, how much of that's required. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, traditionally, speaking like traditionally in the context of computer graphics which isn't that right. old, but um, traditionally yeah. speaking uh, rigging has been um, uh, about how you know from my perspective anyways how you can best subvert the software to make it do what you need it to do uh, uh-huh. so like a, a lot of times uh, uh, you know if you look at um, the underpinnings of software like you know Maya or Houdini or, or whatever mm-hmm. uh, one you're using typically there's uh, some sort of framework that allows you to 
you know, generate values and pass those values through some sort of dependency graph. And then you're modulating values as you go through it, kind of like a modular synthesizer in many ways. Like, so you're mm-hmm. taking, you're just, yeah. You know, uh, and so it, like in lots of cases, um, like say, uh, let me just think of a, a concrete example, like say, you know, an animator needs to, uh, you know, they want to be able to pose uh, something by grabbing it by its wrist using inverse kinematics, but um, for they might want to use uh, forward kinematics as well because the you know arcing motion that you get when you're keyframing that sort of more preferable. Um, but you know, there's obviously certain situations when you might use one or the other. Uh, they'll need a way to easily you know match when you're doing that handoff between one control mechanism and another. So there's always like a, a lot of you know, different techniques that people might put together to be able to make sure that joint chains can snap and keyframe and what have you. So it's a, a lot, it's just a lot of problem solving ultimately, but with a um, targeted goal towards solving, you know, production needs in order to get characters animated in movies. So that's, that's sort of it, I guess, at a high level. I love that. Actually, I've never heard that, but that category, that explains like the feeling subverting the software yeah because it's like you know it was made for one thing and they're not really going to change it i mean they do adapt and and they add stuff all the time um but you have to hack this thing into your your flow yeah i mean and that's uh, i mean lighting was very much like that as well back in the day and, and yeah. lighting sort of has taken the path of physically based you know material models and path tracing and it's more about simulating oh. reality now rather than yeah. uh, subvert, subverting uh, software in order to mimic reality and rigging is going the same sort of way as well. Like where, you know, historically you would look at all the crazy ways you could get something to, you know, create an effect that you're looking for and every choice that you make to have a certain outcome has consequences. So if it's going to, if it solves that specific problem that you're looking for it to solve, you're introducing some side effect somewhere else, which is hopefully outside of the scope of how this thing's going to be used, but typically it will end up somewhere. Whereas uh, if you uh, go again, more along these um, physically based approaches uh, and you, typically will converge more on an engineering based solution for these sorts of problems rather than a uh, creative kind of uh, art projecty sort of approach to solving it, both of which uh, have merit, you know, and can be fun. That's brilliant. So, you know, there's, um, of course, in this field, uh, there's trepidation of AI and, um, and where all of that's going. Um, But one of the things that I like to, the way I like to think about it and phrase this is that, you know, our world, is creative tech and um there is always like our job is to some extent or another to you know be replaced you know to to build solutions and to kind of find creative solutions but those aren't scalable so Mm -hmm. in order to make that scalable you have to build systems and that are ultimately going to replace it yeah um and that sounds like i mean i never thought of rigging because lighting now i mean you used to like you put a bounce here you put another light and then i mean god baking light in unreal engine like wow yeah yeah or i mean or even yeah like you would need to fake uh indirect illumination by hiding lights or you'd people would have these crazy schemes where they'd have you know hundreds of yeah. point lights stuck onto a sphere and sample colors <laughs> of a texture like you know stuff like that um uh-huh. but um yeah no nowadays you you just add a physically based light, physically based material, hit render, and then let the path tracer do its thing, which is cool because, you know, it sort of allow, you know, liberates you to sort of focus on 
the creative aspect of it, not just, oh, how do I even get this thing to work at all? It's, it's kind of like, um, if you look at traditional art, there's an equivalency here, like back, you know, in, you know, hundreds of years ago, artists, you know, couldn't just start painting, they'd have to make their paint first. So you mm. go through this whole process of having to figure out, you know, what different pigments or try to get pigments and mix it and do whatever. And then, you know, there's this whole process before you even get to paint a picture. And uh, in many ways, um, you know, it's a continuum that we're still on today. Like building characters is uh, the equivalent of making the paint. And then you, 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 the creative intent is so, you know, far removed from a lot of these little tasks, you know, ultimately we're going to converge on some point where, you know, it's a lot more intent based, like what, you know, Star Trek kind of already highlighted with the holodeck, you know, like you sort of say, I want it like this and like that. And you can maybe, um, you know, present like your, your idea to the world in ways which are much easier, higher level, you know, one would think, but you know, maybe yeah. I'm just um, being fanciful, but I Next think it's generation like, fan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's totally. probably an understatement as well, but yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't know about the other ones, but next generation and Picard like that, not much yeah. better than that. Yeah, no. Yeah. Next gen is pretty great. Um, yeah. The, uh, new, the new, all the newer shows uh, I I'm having a challenge uh, enjoying. <laughs> I yeah. really want to enjoy it, but uh, it's uh, the writing style has definitely changed. It has, you know, that was one of the things I really liked about next generation was like, they were all parables, like the yeah. story yeah. so neat and compact. Yeah, and everything uh, there. I find a lot of uh, the newer shows have uh, tethers of story that don't lead anywhere. It's mm. just like it's more like a hook to get you, and then it's resolved, and it doesn't tie into the larger tapestry of the story or the the um, yeah parable that they're trying to tell. Uh, whereas uh, the the older writing, maybe I'm just probably just a product of my age, uh, but I do find it, it's all neat and tidy. It all works together. It makes sense, has some cohesiveness to it, which I find uh, aesthetically pleasing. But yeah, totally. I love that idea. So that actually has a frame. That's a framework. What you were talking about earlier with the physical based and the paint. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. That's a framework, I think, for understanding AI. Yep. Yeah, I think so. Huh. I was going to ask you, but I think, you you know, we just uncovered that because, you know, I, there's a lot of fear of AI, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I just had this interview with uh, Ian Spriggs uh, just yesterday we were talking and um, it was this amazing conversation about, you know, um, like we were talking about uh, drawing. So I asked him, you know, do you draw, right? And because he's referencing Caravaggio and all these things. So I was like, mm -hmm. you know, maybe there's a traditional thing. And he said, no, I don't draw. And I was like, you know, devil's advocate do you miss that or should you be drawing and he was like no 3d is this new medium mm -hmm. and we haven't even begun to explore like what 3d is mm -hmm. there's too much yeah no i yeah, I, I would agree with that i mean there's there's definitely uh like uh, i think where uh the there's real value in you know, different forms of media is it kind of uh, engages different parts of your brain. So if you're there and you're drawing, you're you're definitely uh, using a different part of your your brain than you might be if you're interacting with a 3D application program like mm -hmm. on a computer. And uh, they both definitely have value. And they, uh, but yeah, no, I I agree. Like what one of them is is definitely it's it's a new medium. There's uh, more opportunity to sort of uncover what the you know, edge edges of it are and, and maybe to creatively explore things. And like, um, if you look at the, uh, you know, history of, of portraiture, 
and how that you know has evolved over over time and and really how it's um you know its characteristics have sort of changed when say photography got introduced everything was you know highly realistic before photography mm -hmm. photography gets introduced and everyone then started to investigate things which you can't just photograph like you get impressionism and cubism and all that stuff which is really cool and ways to sort of explore more creative possibilities and computer animation is just again like another you know, cool spanner in your toolbox to be able to express whatever it is that you want to get across to you for either to get it out of yourself or, or for other people to enjoy. Yeah. So that, um, I wonder if we want to talk. So that starts to open the door. Cause one of the things I tell this, my students, um, we've done, I've done a lot of interviews and I always ask people, you know, what, um, what beginners should kind of focus on. And, um, you know, it always comes down to story, right? Mm -hmm. Like um, that, that just seems to be like, that's the common thread is uh, fine, build the skills. Uh, I was just talking to uh, a lighter named uh, Nora and she was like, um, you got to have the skills. Like I assume the skills, like if you don't have that, we're not even talking. Mm -hmm. So that has to happen. Everything else is plus mm -hmm. and that's what's going to get you this job. And one of these things is story and being able to tell it. Um, and so, you know, that's an interesting thing here, uh, because as a rigger, you're on the other side of this, where it's like this is you're in a very like nuts and bolts coding kind of environment. Yeah. So I'm wondering, like, what got you into rigging? How did that? How that even uh, happen? Uh, I mean, yeah, for, yeah I, I, I'm usually pretty. Um, I'll take advantage of opportunity as it presents itself, and mm -hmm. if it's like if it's you know, I, I, I'm not. I try not to be too rigid uh, around like what my, what, you know, this is what I want. Um, I'm not going to, you know, modify in order to achieve success. So in, mm -hmm. in my world, like, so back when I was uh, much younger, I was trying to make movies. It's hard to sort of get your friends mm -hmm. to come out on the weekend to do a shoot and that sort of thing. So I was just, yeah. okay, I'll just, you know, see, see what I can do with animation. And uh, then ultimately you, 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 you know, it's this huge rabbit hole of, okay, I got to get characters I can articulate and oh, these deformations are not pleased with it. Uh, how can I improve upon it? Or how can I automate this? Or how can I scale? And it just, it's a huge rabbit hole, which ultimately you end up, you know, I found myself being a tool builder more mm -hmm. than a, uh, you know, person working on the, story or, or that sort of side of things, which is cool because I, I, I did enjoy that as well. And uh, I've always enjoyed, um, you know, tinkering and problem solving. So rigging's a really great place or has been uh, to, as an outlet for that sort of creative uh, side of me. Um, That's great. Yeah. And, and like prior to like computer animation, like I've sort of been into music uh, my whole life mm. and uh, sort of had a in the late eighties and early nineties sort of spent a lot of money, like for, for what I was earning in my restaurant job at the time uh, on like mixing consoles and synthesizers and stuff like that. So this was really a extension of that in many ways, because a lot of the same principles exist, uh, which is yeah pretty interesting. So there's lots of opportunity for creative crossover. Yeah. So were you a server in a restaurant? Uh, I, I, I was a server, a bartender, um, busboy, uh, sort of did most of the front of the house jobs. Uh, any of those lessons? What did I love that? Because I used to be a server. I started yeah. as a busboy, server, a server at TGI Fridays. Uh -huh. I do not recommend that. 
yeah. like anybody. And then I was in a fine dining and then I managed <laughs> yep. a lot of those lessons. Like I live by a lot a- of the lessons. Absolutely. Service industry is uh, everyone should do it. I think yeah, <laughs> you, I, you learn, you learn a lot. Um, and like from, uh, you know, it, now like, you know, I have a, quite a lot of customer, you know, contact now where we're, you know, working out whatever, you know, statements of work or, or what have you. And a lot of the same principles apply, like, and just being able to coordinate and work on as a team, be able to, uh, you know, manage to get along with challenging, you know, personalities, like all, all mm-hmm. that stuff will do, do you well your entire life. <laughs> and, and also I think uh, the idea of, um, you know, not ever having, you know, hubris, you know, like you, 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 a lot of times you can, if you're in that role where you're serving and it's a difficult customer, uh, you know, it doesn't serve you well to, you know, act out at them. It's like, no, this isn't the way to mediate this situation. And and you learn a lot of uh, skills, I think. Full disclosure, I was kicked out of a restaurant last night. Oh no. (laughs) Why is that? (laughs) By the owner. (laughs) I, the, he had young staff. So mm-hmm. I knew, you know, I knew we were in for a little bit of trouble and they're yep. very pleasant staff, like at the end of the day, just young. So they didn't know to do a loop, right? So they didn't know yeah. to, you go to the back, get everything, hit all your tables, go mm-hmm. back. Like, and so they were just, they were in the weeds. Yeah. yeah. You know, poor guy. Yeah. So we got this uh, totally raw lamb chops. Oh. Uh, yeah. Which, you know, you, I was like, is this like a. Is this something Spanish people do? Is it like, are we supposed to eat it? Or, or did you guys make a mistake? So I go yeah. and I tell the waiter, I'm like, or the, I ask for the manager and I'm standing there and I'm like, uh, what are we supposed to do with this? Right. Mm-hmm. And within 10 seconds, he's like, you're being condescending. Wow. To me. Yeah. And, and then I said, did you, did you just call me condescending? And I was like that, where am I? And then mm-hmm. I said, yeah, I did. And if you don't like it, you can leave. Wow. Within 15 seconds that happened. Wow. Um, yeah. I can't imagine he'll, last very long in that industry if it's rough like that but yeah but wow. it comes down to hubris right yeah you know and and you have to be able to take because your cust some of them are, i might have been a difficult customer i'm not going to mm-hmm. deny that but you know you got to do it yeah and well, uh, that actually takes me to another question mm-hmm. uh you have you got seven million in seed rounds in may mm-hmm. or you in like uh, of 2020, so February 2020. 2020. Yeah, sorry, I should have put yeah. the year, not the month. Yeah, yeah. Um, that you have to meet a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. You got uh, a lot of hubris. Got to tone that down. Tell me yeah. about that process a little bit. Uh, like of uh, raising capital, like that. Yeah. That, that process. Um, I, I, and yeah. just so you, you know, some context. Like, um, we took I took Vertex School through the Founders Institute, so we yeah. had to do like these pitches to people. Yeah, and yeah. Humbling. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah, you learn, um, you have to have a thick skin if you want to be, uh, do any entrepreneurial sort of stuff. And right. actually, I, I think, uh, you know, the visual effects industry was, a, a, well, you know, restaurant work, visual effects industry, like all, all this sort of stuff um, was actually really good uh, background uh, for then being an entrepreneur. Because in both of those cases, uh, yeah, you have to sort of, you know, develop a thick skin because you're going to, you know, see a lot more rejection than you see acceptance. And uh, you sort of have to still have that inner confidence to be able to persist even uh, in light of a, a bunch of uh, headwinds. Um, and, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a challenging thing for sure. Um, yeah. I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, 
I don't have any particular words of wisdom. I mean, other than I, I think, I think in many ways, like, I mean, it's all, it's a combination of things. Like you have to be lucky. You have to be, have the right idea at the right time. You have to have the good fortune of uh, interacting with the right people, having the right things on your resume, like all these things accumulate. And um, I mean, for, in my part, uh, you, know, after we won the SciTech, you know, you don't get, um, you know, a cash prize for that. So it's just, it's an accolade. So it's great and all, like I, I really, it's an amazing thing to achieve. It's an amazing thing to have on your resume, but in, in many ways, like kind of like, um, you know, if you have a, say you win the lottery, you just put, let that money sit in your bank account. The second it's not put to work, it's losing its value every day because, you know, of inflation and all those things. And uh, an award like that is kind of similar to that in my mind anyways. Like you sort of have to view these things as a tool and it's like, okay, if I want to get from here to there, uh, what do I have at my disposal? How can I, uh, you know, better position myself or, you know, if you have an award and it's just sitting there and then you're not doing anything with it in many ways, like the value of that is degrading every day because you're not uh there's a, a unlocked potential that is there if you're the sort of person that wants to be able to do something and i i'm definitely um of the mind i, I like to do stuff <laughs> that's I, I really enjoy that um and uh so I, I felt really compelled to be able to uh leverage that you know advantage that i had because it uh you know separates you know my pitch deck from 50 others in, in some respects. So at least I know we'll, we'll get a, an interview or you'll be able right. to talk to the person. And uh, I feel pretty good if I can speak to someone, uh, I can, I'm usually reasonably good at articulating what it is that we do, what the value proposition is. And if it lines up with their investment uh, ideals, then you know hopefully that will converge on something. But saying that it still took a long time to, to, to actually find the right investors. Uh, in fact, our, our um, anchor investor found us and, and he, he then really helped to um, circle the wagons and bring in some other like-minded investors. So uh, finding someone like that is, uh, was really fortunate on our part and, and helped us to sort of get across that finish line. Mm. And in my experience, a lot of the investors, you know, they're over 50. They probably didn't understand a lot of the stuff, you know, if you got too technical. So I'm wondering if you, if you can share, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, like what is the pitch? How do you pitch? Uh, well, in, in our, in our case, we were really fortunate in that case. So um, there was the, the key, like the investor that found us, he, mm -hmm. he's, uh, you know, qu quite a bit younger than I am. And uh, he, uh, he was put in charge of a fund and mm -hmm. uh, he, he sort of had his own, uh, he's super smart and uh, was sort of looking at, you know, how, um, you know, uh, you know, looking at the, the the crossover of you know AI and you know entertainment and things like that, and mm -hmm. uh, you know he, we he uh, uncovered us. And similar to your statement at the beginning of this call, he's like, yeah, you guys are hard to find. I went. Uh, he sort of looked all around. There's a, a bunch. You know, mostly, I think it's because we're in Vancouver and not in the Bay Area, and there's you know at least that's a part of it. And uh, there's just not the same kind of uh, access to capital up here that you get south of the border. Uh, and uh, as a result, you know, the, we have a, 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 a shorter soapbox to stand on. So, but he, he found us and uh, felt pretty confident that you know, what we had to offer was a differentiator and uh, really supported us in trying to bring in additional investors to fill out the round. Mm. That's awesome. Um, so where does this go? And I'm wondering on a couple of different levels, you know, um, 
because you said earlier that you know you kind of you you take advantage of opportunities like if something happens you're you're willing to change uh-huh. um, but at the same time if i look back it does seem like there's some single-minded focus to what you have been doing over the last 20 years yeah i mean there's i mean you know i sort of i'll have a north star uh, yeah. it's not like yeah i'm not just going to go all over the place so i have a north star of something that you know this this interests me i'm passionate mm-hmm. about that but the path i use to get there can be circuitous you know i don't doesn't need to be a straight line and it you know if i were intent on it being a straight line i probably wouldn't get the headway I need because uh, there's going to be some obstacle in my path, which I'm just not going to be able to go through. So it's mm-hmm. easier to sort of find interesting ways to go around it. Similar to, to rigging again, like, you know, mm-hmm. traditional rigging, it's all about subverting a system in order to get outcomes that you're looking for. Uh, entrepreneurship is similar and at least my experience with it. That makes sense. And so, um, if we were to like look out towards the future, I think we've kind of already hit on this, but um, you know, did you have in your mind 10 years ago, like I'm going to create a company and we're going to move this to physically based and we're going to move to AI and things like that or. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, so uh, yeah, myself and my colleagues that, you know, that were on the side tech initially um, we, the, we were on avatar uh, like that's, we'd sort of built that stuff for the first avatar film mm-hmm. initially. And uh, the cool thing with that film for, as a life experience uh, was it's not often when you get to work on a film that has a development timeline as long of, as long as that, and the opportunity to investigate solutions, which typically, um, you know, would not fall within the time frame that you normally have have in order to deliver on something. So we right. could uh, investigate and implement approaches which, you know, we wouldn't have the ability to do so on other films, which was cool. And uh, in many ways, um, we're able to sort of peek over the horizon of the planet to see, oh, these are these things are doable. This makes sense. And then if you just follow that derivative, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. this is obviously going to be more important in the future. Um, then in, uh, so that's like sort of the positive side of sort of seeing opportunity on the negative side. Uh, I was sort of finding, uh, the work that I w- really enjoyed doing was becoming harder and harder to do inside of the confines of a single studio. And most mm-hmm. studios, because they were needing to scale, were looking for more off the shelf solutions in order to fill those gaps in their pipeline. So it kind of putting one and one together, it seemed to make sense to, you know, try to work, do that sort of work from outside of a single studio and instead, uh, you know, enable an industry rather than a single studio. Um, so that's, that's one side of it. And then the other side was um, uh, the year. So we were started in 2015 uh, when leading up to the formation of the company, the Oculus D- DK2 had come out. I, I really had some, I, I had the good fortune of also driving down to Seattle and uh, getting a preview of the Vive before it came out. I just had some friends working at Valve and mm-hmm. yeah, just that whole immersive experience. I was pretty blown away, especially by um, Google Earth on it. It was just like, wow, this is so cool. Um, and uh, I really had a vivid uh, mind's eye image of interacting with a you know human-sized you know human you know mm-hmm. in in the in a VR sort of setting, and I thought that just seemed to, like a really compelling you know goal to sort of aim at. Uh, so a, a lot of the work that we've really been doing in the company over the years has been around um, how do you. Uh, make that a scalable, achievable goal. Like essentially, how do you make how do you uh, make the process of making the the paint easy so that artists now can tell their stories with it? Mm. The future's in the tool makers. Yeah, 
Yeah, and actually what's interesting in that point in time, uh, tools uh, were not a uh, popular thing to invest in. So I think things have uh, definitely come full circle now, but if you go back then uh, tools, uh, everyone was about um, different social media platforms or um, a, a VR hardware was a big thing back then. And uh, 3D graphics tools were not, were, yeah, were, were, weren't considered a good investment opportunity. Uh, so mm. it's, uh, but, but it is, um, if you sort of know the, if you have hardware, you're going to need to fill it with content. You know, eventually they're going to hit on uh, the the um, stumbling block that you're aware of because, you know, in my case, I've been spending an entire career making 3D graphics. So you sort of know you need these bits in order to actually deliver content to that hardware that they're, they just invested a billion dollars in or, or what have you. Right. Uh, do you have entrepreneurship in the family? Uh, no, no. I mean, my um, father was a real estate agent um so he um you know i, I guess in some respects that that's a that's a hustle i mean that's it's, a, a, it's a hustle for yeah, sure um, work. yeah and on my my mom uh you know, went to art school and that sort of thing so i guess mm -hmm. uh, uh my skill set is probably a blend between the two of them was it freaky like making that decision i'm not gonna have a studio job because uh no i mean yes and no i mean like i uh, work like it, when you're on the hook to sort of deliver on effects especially earlier in the industry like when uh every show uh there's you need to do something novel and you didn't really know how you were going to entirely mm -hmm. solve the problem before the show delivered but there's a delivery date um so it's very much that same concept and and um yeah, we sort of continued that for better or worse. Uh, but now, uh, now that things uh, we have some established processes and tools, uh, now it's it transitions from being uh, less of a make the parachute on the way down and more about scaling up production of of now known quantities. Yeah. Um, how about the the management side? So I just want to talk a little bit about the business. So like the. The management side, I remember, like, I remember when I first started my company, I, I was working with Alex uh, over at Noman, mm -hmm. and uh, he said something to me that, like, I still remember this day. I didn't understand the importance of it. He was like, uh, I don't think he was happy that I was going to start my own business. And he's like, oh, I, I didn't know you wanted to be a manager. And I was like, I don't want to be a manager. I'm just going to start my own business and teach, right? And then I realized, I think, like, about six years later, <laughs> when it was too late to go back, <laughs> yep. I was like, Oh shit, starting a business. Now I have to be a manager. Now I'm this process is people don't just know what to do for some weird reason. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah. how was that um, jumping in and now suddenly you're actually building staff and dealing with HR to some extent, I imagine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I was again, very fortunate. Like I, I've, um, you know, uh, we, we, we don't hire, we haven't historically hired quickly. So like mm -hmm. we've scaled uh, at a at a you know relatively uh, you know measured rate um, because uh, it's super important that we bring the right people onto the team because um, you, you need to span a certain skill set you need to make sure that there's a, a decent fit because uh, you can only handle so many challenging personalities and, and you know every every group of people is going to have them but you need to sort of figure out that that balance because uh, you know if, if the the team gets too imbalanced one way or the, the other then uh, your forward velocity is going to be you know noticeably impacted so that um, I sort of view like that sort of 
process is again like kind of similar to problem solving in other domains it's it's all about how do you balance things properly uh, and if you you notice uh, it need, you need a course correction then you have to jump in and, and do that um, I, I have a mental sort of model for this when I, uh, I my second car I ever bought was like a was a, a used Honda Prelude uh, with an Accord motor thrown in it. So oh. and and it, so it was a it was a, a total Frankenstein car. And uh, I don't know how my dad managed to get it passed its inspection. Like it shouldn't have. But the um, the steering wheel, like if you you know the the steer, steering alignment was completely off. So if I'm on the highway and I let go of the wheel, it would have careened off the road like pretty dramatically. It was, it, was, oh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't safe. But running. Um, you know, a company in the best of times, uh, you let go of the wheel, it keeps moving perfectly straight. In the worst of times, it's that car I just described. And, uh, you know, Ziva's sort of had moments of both, you know, and, uh, you know, you know, I'm, you know, and it's always about, you know, how do you st stack the deck to encourage it to be more self-managing? Self um, hmm. Yeah, but no, uh, as far as um, being a manager, yeah, I mean, that's not um, my... The greatest joy for me in life though uh it is incredibly satisfying when you have those uh moments when you know if it's a christmas party or something like that and the team comes together and you can sort of see you know wow uh this thing that you know that was nothing is now uh, supporting these 60 families and whatever mm -hmm. it's like that's pretty cool um and you know something that you know is it's a double-sided coin because it's something to feel proud about that wow you know all these people have uh are, have made a career off of this idea and uh terrified about that oh if i can't keep funding coming in or whatever there are all these families that uh, are going to need to find other means to feed themselves so <laughs> yeah i totally understand that and letting people go is like one of the worst things yeah. on the planet. Yeah, especially, I mean, I guess that's probably why um, entrepreneurship probably has a higher than average, uh, uh, you know, sociopath I think <laughs> percentage. So. Yeah, because it's, uh, it, it's, yeah, it can be pretty brutal. Um, and if you, if you're someone that, you know, does like people and, you know, will we'll connect with them, uh, th those are really, really hard situations. But then sort of have to measure the the health of the rest of the team and the organization against, uh, you know, the needs of individuals and sort of treat it that way, which is cold, but, you know, it's, it is uh, practical, right? Yeah. And you guys are doing amazing work. So why don't we talk about v Ziva a little bit and um, I guess the key thing now would be to just make sure students have some insight, like what could they do, if anything, um, and then also what should they um, be doing. So first with uh, Ziva, if I remember right, it's still open, right? Nothing's changed after the acquisition. Yeah, yeah. So we uh, so we uh, have a, a number of different things that we have that's public, things that we're working on, uh, which mm -hmm. are in limited release, and then we do a bunch of uh, like sort of direct engagements with you know AAA companies or film studios. But uh, sort of speaking to the gamut of things that we have, so we have a we've written a plugin for Maya, which is uh, Ziva VFX. So what that is, it's an elastic solid and sheet simulator with uh, kind of targeted towards uh, solving problems around anatomical simulation. So okay. essentially you can make a closed polygon, you can turn it into a tissue. And then when you run a simulation, you know, it will be affected by you know forces of gravity. You can make it excite like a real muscle. So when you you know, turn up the excitation, it will flex and contract like a real muscle. It will be have volume conserving properties, like all that sort of stuff. So you can um, keyframe that. 
you can keyframe that or um, or you'll build a rig out of it. And you know, there, you'll, there'll be things like we have uh, these line of action nodes, which uh, can, mm -hmm. you know, anticipate when the excitation would need to be fired and then we'll excite the muscle based upon, you know, if the line of action is shortened or something like, cause Perfect. typically you might yeah, connect it from your forearm to your shoulder. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's a tool for building out these anatomical simulations. Uh, it is also like, you, you're not, it's not limited to realistic anatomical things. You can do Disney style sort of like a Zootopia type characters as well, like where you might just have an elastic solid uh, sitting around a more traditionally rigged uh, thin version of the character on the inside just to get secondary jiggle and stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's good at that sort of stuff as well. Um, and then we've had um, animators use it for a variety of things, like where you might just use it as a way to preview uh, what the ballistic path of something might be. And you can use it uh, then to give you a good guide of how you might time something if you're keyframing it because you right. know it's an easy access to physics to be able to do that sort of stuff okay um, so that's ziva vfx um we have ziva rt so that is our real-time tool so what that is is it's a standalone application that uh expects certain inputs those of which would be like you know some bakes of what uh, so the the inputs are kind of considered the training set so like we you have uh you know, a bake of a, uh, of results that you think, oh, this is what I want my character to look like when it's trained. So typically what we'll do is we'll run these Eva VFX simulations of characters doing a wide range of motion. And then uh, we'll bake that out to Alembics. So now we have Alembic bakes of good results. And we have the skeletal motion of that character along with its basic skinning weights. So for this, you only need the logical skeleton. You don't need helper bones or, or stuff like that. And those three things now you feed into this trainer. And then it uses machine learning to figure out, okay, when the skinning looks like this, uh, you really want it to look like that bake. And it, it's essentially like a, a pose-based deformer on steroids. So it just sort of gives you a, a really beautiful like result that looks like the offline simulation that might've taken hours to run, except now it's a million times faster and you can put it in the game. So that's what that tool does. Um, and then um, there's uh, work we've been doing with faces specifically. And that's, again, like um, each of these things kind of uh, builds upon each other. So Ziva uh, RT initially needed high quality training. So we have a physics simulation to build training sets that now you can train and make fast. And then if you want to do faces, we use Ziva RT as a, a nice way to generate not high quality nonlinear deformations at real time. But then how do you animate it? So we had to build a image regressor tool to be able to drive uh, facial animation from a video stream like that, a bunch of stuff like that. Um, and the, the face tooling, uh, we do have a, an initial version of that that's uh, slated to come out like soon. We're a public company now, so I can't be as open about stuff, mm -hmm. but um, soon. I'll just leave it at soon. Uh, uh, and then, is, is, that, uh, is that crazy to say we're a publicly traded company now? Uh, I've gotten used to that idea uh, being okay. part of part of unity now, but um, so yeah, no. Uh, so uh, yes, yeah, so that's coming out soon. And then mm -hmm. um, what that will be is a, um, the expectation uh, from an artist at this point is we have a, a, a kit that you can download where in it you'll have a, you have our topology along with a registration texture. And then if you fit our topology mm -hmm. to your model and then you upload it to our service, uh, we can automatically build a face puppet for you that is trained. You know, we're essentially transferring uh, a bunch of learnings from you know an individual that we've done 
extensive 4D capture with, we've done a bunch of cleaning, like non-rigid stabilization and data clean, cleaning up occlusions and a, a bit, quite a long process in order to get the data in a really nice state. All of that can be transferred onto your model. And what you get out of this is a posable face that you know is of the highest level of quality. Okay. And your source is 4D, wow. Yeah, yeah. So 4D data plus, um, like we for like occluded areas, we end up running physics simulations in order to extrapolate what you know the say the inner lip might be doing if the outer mm -hmm. lip looks like this, um, and then yeah, a whole bunch of other stuff because we need to figure out what's the skull just doing in order to stabilize the head against uh, you know because we, we we typically we won't have our um, talent uh, a lot of times when people are doing 4D capture they'll have the talent sit there and not move their head at all. Uh, and we've sort of gone the other way. We want them to be as free to move however they like, and then we'll figure out how to you know, understand what the skull and neck bones are doing in order to stabilize it ourselves post uh, post capture. And when, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you get this AI trained, like it's, I mean, it's not really, I don't know how to say it, but like it's a huge thing. Like basically the source of the company is training that AI because yeah. that AI becomes then that's the power. You yeah. Can... It, yeah. And then uh, obviously, and just like to clarify, like the, the yeah. AIs that we're using here. So we, we're using uh, yes. a mach a classical machine learning for learning the deformations that run uh, at real time rates. So, mm -hmm. and then we're using a, a deep learning based approach to do image regression to animated parameters, which then drives that, that animatable puppet. So in that case, um, that's, that's the thing where you can have the, an actor drive uh, a face, you know, with a head mounted camera for example. Is that something you can unpack for us a little bit? Because um, I know when we talk AI, you know, it's basically Steven Spielberg's movie. It's like, you know, there's a lot of, we don't know exactly why. Um, but uh, I had somebody once explain it to me that AI is not AI. Like you know, it's first there's machine learning mm -hmm. and, and that's the learning phase. And then there's the decision phase. Yeah. Together uh, they're AI is what this guy was uh, saying. Yeah. I mean, like they're like, uh, machine learning is like uh, I think is the umbrella term. So like there's a, a whole uh, different subcategories of ways that you can use uh, techniques that are sit inside of machine learning in order to uh, essentially it's like um, if you think of um, guitar effects pedals, you have like input and output. And then whatever happens on the inside, uh, you don't need to know what's in it. You just just needs to get the outcome that you want. And right. uh, in these sorts of approaches, it's kind of similar, like where uh, it, you'll have a input in our case uh, for our deformation. Say we have a uh, articulated skeleton as an input into our, our algorithm. And then the output of that is a deformable mesh that looks uh, looks like a real body. And uh, it, so in this case, the algorithm that's running on the inside is figuring out what the relationship is between uh, rotations and deformations. Uh, so that, and uh, so that's, uh, you know, machine, the, the machine learning part of that thing. Uh, okay. And then if you look at AI and how that stuff sort of regarded today, typically that's, uh, people think of deep learning typically when they think of that. And that sort of yeah. sits un under that umbrella of techniques as well. So there's deep learning, there's uh, a number of different classical machine learning approaches, whether it's uh, you know, radial basis functions or 
whatever, like there's a, a whole bunch of, uh, you know, least squares fitting, like whatever. There's a bunch of techniques that people might use. And then AI typically uses uh, like a, a gradient descent as a, a approach to sort of converge on a problem. So basically, um, uh, in all these cases, uh, what you end up doing is you're, you're building uh, a lot of samples. And in these samples, you're saying at this, uh, at this uh, correlation of these inputs, it relates to these outputs. And then it, it, if you're given thousands or millions of these uh, correlations, it can figure out what the, it could um, anticipate what the outcome should be given a new novel input. So if, mm -hmm. because it's seen something like it before, so it can do something like it now. So in our case with uh, our image regressor, we um, will, uh, we've captured an actress uh, in a 4D capture rig. So we have like 20 minutes of 4D data of her. So for anyone listening that doesn't know what that is, it's uh, we have a single topology that where the vertices are just deforming over time, like uh, any sort of animatable mesh except it's tracking the deformations of a real person's face. So we have 20 minutes of that. And um, now that it's uh, seen that, uh, we can render that from any camera now because we have this really amazing data to, to render. So we can use a syn synthetic camera that, you know, where the uh, lighting information and the optics sort of match uh, the intrinsics of the camera that's on that head-mounted camera. And then you render out a whole bunch of synthetic data that looks very much like the real video feed. And then you train your deep learning process with that. So now when it sees the real video footage of that person, it can anticipate you know, what the output should look like because it's seen something like it before. So that's kind of the process. Yeah, so I wanted to um, write there, because uh, so, I know 4D scanning of you know so, uh, object as it moves, um, it's process like it's just process intensive. You have so much work you have to do to clean up and to make it usable to some extent. Yep. Um, and then there are companies now in this machine learning space that are talking about simulated uh -huh. um, data sets. Uh -huh. And so I, I had an interview a while back with a company called DataGen, uh -huh. and their job is to create, um, uh, I think, just uh, virtual simulations for companies to a train their AI. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, so we, we, and, we yeah. yeah, we do both those things. So like for okay. our, our bodies, typically we run uh, Ziva VFX simulations to simulate what bodies look like in motion uh -huh. for, for the faces. We start with a ground truth of a real person, but yeah. then we're, we're, you know, simulating areas where there might be occluded cameras. So like you right. can't always see the inside of the lip. So we run simulations in order to make sure that uh, we can capture the lip contact and make sure that, uh, what's happening inside of the mouth is reasonable, like that sort of thing. All right, totally get it. All right, man, this is great. I really appreciate all this um, in depth and, and you know, congratulations. Oh, you thanks, know, yeah. This is an amazing thing. Unity and Unreal, man, it looks like there's these um, juggernauts, like just getting up there, going to grow this entire new industry for us. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's pretty great to sort of, uh, like it seemed like for several years there, uh, graphics wasn't the cool kid on the block anymore. Uh -huh. And it's really, really great that uh, people are interested again. Uh, it's it certainly, it's good for people like yourself or I, or, you know, anyone who is into graphics, you know, it, it means I can do something I love and uh, make a living at it too, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. that is. So um, I think uh, there was just um, one more thing I'd love to ask you um, outside of, you know, whether or not you have a 
favorite next gen episode. Mm -hmm. um, do you? Oh, do I? Um, uh, oh, there's so many good ones, but I, I think. I um, uh, oh God, that's, uh, I, I, sh I should have come prepared. Uh, <laughs> that's one because I was thinking, yeah. uh, should I ask hmm. him? But then I was like, oh, what's mine? And now I have to go through all the data stories. Yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely nothing from season one. <laughs> Yeah, PowerPoint <laughs> so, station. No, I, no, uh, no. It's easier to think of ones I, I, I wasn't as fond of. Uh, there was um, some really good ones with, uh, uh, like, uh, the, oh, you know what? Probably Darmok and Jihad at Tanagra. Ah, one. yes. That, that one was really great, I thought, because it was an outlier. There weren't very many uh, that were, were that had that sort of nature to it, which yeah. I, I thought was really cool. Uh, and I mean, yeah, ask me next next week. It will be a different episode, but that one just Fair. sort of jumped jumped to the forefront. Darmok <laughs> at Tanagra. Yes, yes. <laughs> perfect. All right, last thing. Um, somebody somebody's thinking about rigging. Um, you know, I any advice for what they should focus on? Like, um, and I like to look at this from like a checklist. Like, mm -hmm. um, you got to make sure that you understand you know, C++, you got to understand Python. Like, I'm not saying that's the case, but like, what would be the things that they need to hit? Uh, I mean, uh, this list might vary depending upon whether you're going to visual sure. effects or going into feature animation or what have yeah. you. But I mean, certainly, uh, if you're dealing with uh, final deformations, having an eye for for that sort of thing is, is yeah, paramount. Um, yeah. I think being able to script nowadays is also, if it's not on your resume, it's probably going to be hard for a lot of employers to move forward uh, just mm. because everything needs to be scripted and proceduralized in order to you know build to the scale that these shows demand nowadays um and uh i mean just being affable goes a long way too like because if mm. there's two two um people that you could hire and they have comparable resumes but one of them just looks like they'd be a better team player you're gonna I, i'll feel more inclined to hire the person that i think will fit in better that's awesome. All right, James, thank you so much. And congrats on all the success. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot. All right, take care. Okay, okay cheers. Bye. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to this. And I want to ask just two things of you. Number one, make sure to leave a comment or rank this wherever you are listening to it on Apple, uh, Stitcher, Spotify. Really makes a difference in helping us get the word out about this industry and about what we do. Number two, make sure you visit vertexschool.com to learn more about what programs we offer in this area as a creative and for artists who are looking to jumpstart their career and discover a new industry. Again, thank you so much for listening. We're accepting applications right now, so I look forward to hearing from you soon.